0: Hey, guys. well, I uh, get started in just a minute. Hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm an uh, author and journalist and podcaster. My other main gig is uh, Blocked and Reported, which is a weekly podcast you can check out at blockedandreported.org. And I have a newsletter on Substack, uh, jessiesingle.substack.com. This uh, thing, this call thing, is sort of an outgrowth of that and covers a lot of the same subjects. Uh, today, I'm mostly going to take questions, so feel free to jump in the queue. Questions or uh, comments are all welcome. I wanted to talk a little bit about the news um, The Verge broke that Manuel Dotsi and uh, Alex Goldman are leaving Reply All, uh, which was once one of my favorite podcasts and has just had like a catastrophic implosion going back... Um, God, I guess uh, more than a year now. Um, it, it's a long, complicated story, but I think it really, it should be a case study on, like how not to handle certain issues. Um, it, it started with Reply All, in my view, sort of determining it had to be more tied to the present moment, to the present racial reckoning. This led them to launch what was supposed to be a four-part uh, series on race problems at Bon Appetit in the workplace there. Uh, that, Two episodes in, there was this disaster where a former Gimlet staffer accused uh, reply all staffers of of the same sort of racial insensitivity they were uh, arguing about or they were reporting on at Bon Appetit. There was never really any good evidence that they'd actually done anything wrong. What happened was that they had initially opposed a union uh, drive that. It was complicated. There was a lot of money at stake there was There was a lot going on i 've written about this in my newsletter um, no one 's ever explained how the two accused people here uh, p j Vo and Sruthi Pinamaneni, did anything to warrant um, the firestorm they experienced and it, it was a firestorm disseminated far and wide by by journalists themselves on twitter who hadn 't looked into the facts at all, so uh, they ended up stepping down. Uh, Reply all which was once a truly great podcast chugged along with um Alex Goldman Emmanuel Dotsier, but not, uh, Dotsie, but not but not um p j vote and it was just sort of a shell of it former self. and you know the verge reported that Gimlet says that they might bring it back in some form i what I heard is the show is basically dead i mean i 'm not like super sourced up or anything but a couple different people told me the show is effectively dead so uh I don't know. I feel like a lot of outlets and a lot of people during the reckoning felt like they had to be active participants in it. And this included a lot of people who, you know, already had carved out other niches, already had other stuff they were good at. And I I don't know. I think the lesson here is, like, you can't be all things to all people. Like, Reply All had a niche that was mostly just telling really great human stories about people and about the Internet. you know, they said they were a show that was about the internet, but not really about the internet because all their stories tied into just like the human condition, for lack of a less cliched term. And they really mastered that sort of storytelling. And it, I don't think it was until they decided that they really they had to take part in the reckoning that uh, the trouble arose. That might be, you know, an account that some like super fans might disagree with. Maybe I'm oversimplifying a little bit. But I, I had been an avid listener, I had listened to every episode for a long time. And I really thought that uh, that, that marked a uh, turning point. So um, that was sort of the only thing I really wanted to spiel about. Uh, folks should jump in the queue to uh, ask questions or comments. The only other thing I was sort of keeping an eye on was just like Elon Musk's uh, increasingly erratic Twitter behavior, which is just really wild to watch. It- it's interesting to me, these rich guys that like just don't have any guardrails um, – they sort of don't have anyone in their life telling them to put down the phone and stop tweeting because in Musk's case, he's just like he's all over the place uh, at a time when you would think he would maybe want to be a little bit careful. Although maybe if you have that much money, you don't have to be careful and you can sort of relish the act of not being careful. <laughs> I think it's an interesting psychological experiment to imagine what would happen to you and to your yourself your psyche, if you were suddenly like in possession of billions of dollars, I, I feel like it would not have a good effect on me. <laughs> like I would not become a better or more noble or virtuous person. And I think, um, whatever problems you have with self-control or with like wanting to just shoot your opinions everywhere, they're probably going to be rendered worse rather than better. If someone drops uh billions of dollars in your lap, so I highly recommend checking out Elon's Twitter feed. At this point, I sort of feel like he's looking for excuses not to go forward with the deal. I mean, he he did this like ridiculous quasi-experiment where he asked people to provide their own estimates of what percentage of Twitter users are bots. It's his, this is his new thing. He doesn't want to buy it until he's sure there aren't that many bots. But, I mean, there, there's scientific ways to try to figure this out. But what he was suggesting was... Uh, was not one of them. Um, so, yeah. There's one other thing I want to say about the PJ vote thing that I'm forgetting. Um, anyway, people should hop in the queue because I uh, I did not prepare much for spiel today, and I want to take your questions. Klaus, thank you. Klaus and Ned. Klaus. Klaus? Klaus.
1: Yeah, can you hear me?
0: I can. How's it going?
1: Good. Um, I know you touched on this, like, a little bit in the quick fix. Not much. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, like what we can do to reduce crime and also on that topic, like how liberals or leftists can get better at discussing this topic. Cause I think this issue is like a real weak point for the left of center right now.
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. Matt Iglesias has written some good stuff on that. Um, uh, God, Eric Levitz at New York Magazine has, when I was in my twenties, I read a book called Don't Shoot by David Kennedy. I read some stuff by Mark Kleiman, who was, unfortunately died a few years ago, fairly young, but he was like a real big sort of center left, uh, policy wonk on crime stuff. And, and a lot of what they recommended was sort of, um, Intensive policing of areas – I'm probably oversimplifying this – but of areas with like really high crime, I think a key insight is that when it comes to violent crime, it's a very small percentage of people doing a huge amount of the shooting. And some of the policies they favor would be like basically sort of accumulating enough evidence so that you could charge these kids and they're usually kids and bringing them together and saying like – look, if there's any more shootings, we have what we need. We're just going to charge all you guys and it'll be the fault of whoever shoots. And and basically leveraging the system in a way where you're not just like arresting people to arrest them. You're definitely not locking them up uh, for nonviolent charges, but you're you're really focusing on the most troubled areas. And I think that was seen as a much more focused approach than something like stop and frisk, where you're literally just stopping random people and, and really um, – you know, reducing the desire of the community to cooperate. Uh, I just think the discourse about defunding and abolishing has been a disaster, but I I don't think Joe Biden's in favor of that. I don't think he's ever said he has. So I think it's been a matter of, you know, caricaturing his position. and, And this, unfortunately, there's a fringe of the party and a fringe of the left that loves making these arguments and they get platformed in places like the New York Times, whereas, the New York Times is much lessly li- to less likely to run a column by like a person of color compare, uh, concerned about crime in their neighborhood, and that is a much more common belief among people of color. Among I'm over you know I'm oversimplifying here, but among Black Americans, crime is a huge concern because often they're stuck in neighborhoods with with large amounts of it, and that sucks, and no one likes that. And the idea that their main policy goal is defunding or abolishing the police, or that they have any desire to do so, is just. Um, I think it annoys me the extent to which people who claim to be speaking for poor people in different and uh, more dangerous neighborhoods than them claim that that's a policy that those people want. Cause on average they just don't, I don't think I like solved or fully answered your question. Was that, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was just, yeah, I was just wondering if this is something you plan to write about. Cause I, I, I mean, I don't really know that much about it. I just know that, a lot of the answers I hear on both the left and the right are not very compelling. Um, So yeah, I was just curious of of what your thoughts were.
0: Yeah, I think I might look into it more at some point. I think Iglesias has been good at that and has, has been a good counterpoint to the abolished stuff, but it's definitely a subject I should probably get uh, a little bit deeper into. When I was at New York magazine, I, um. I, Wrote a book called "Wrote a book," wrote about a book called "The Black Silent Majority" by Michael uh, Javin Fortner. Um, and there's some really interesting history about how um, the Rockefeller drug laws, which are seen as these pretty draconian New York State drug laws, which they are or were before they were um, repealed, uh, there was a lot of political pressure from places like Harlem to Pass these laws, and I think it'll always be the case that people turn toward law and order when crime's an issue. So um, anyway, thank you for the call. I, this is probably an issue I should revisit because I, I knew more about like cutting-edge criminology stuff back in the day than I do now. Ned, what is up? Oh.
2: Hey there, hey. Jesse. Um, not much. Um, with respect to the reply-all situation, I think an- another analogous one is um, at the company Basecamp, that whole kerfuffle that started with a baseless claim of with the presence of white supremacy at the, at the company with your Jesse single, uh, hypothetical CEO head on, when you have an insider publicly making unfalsifiable claims of some ism that your organization genuinely isn't, what's the playbook?
0: Yeah, I've had, um, I know people who are like higher ups in organizations who have had to deal with this. So, so basically the, what you're supposed to do in air quotes is to immediately acknowledge that, yes, your organization is run through with white supremacy, which uh, do that to me. It like sort of devalues or uh, does something to the concept of white supremacy, which is a term we should deploy carefully because it it is a real thing. Um, I would, you know, internally, I would make sure employees felt heard out and make sure that they can vet if they feel something's wrong. But I would also make it pretty clear that like, I take the reputation of the company seriously and that, you know, if we would really prefer you talk about this stuff internally, if you talk about it internally and we can't solve the problem for you, of course we understand that at a certain point it's going to leak out to the press, but we really think for the, for the well-being of the company and for keeping things running uh, we want to hear your complaints internally before you go public. And, and that we also, while we take seriously accusations of, um, of of racism or bigotry we we take them seriously in the sense that we're not just going to accept them as true uh if you don't provide evidence so it's weird to me watching so many powerful people and in powerful institutions just willing to publicly be like yeah this is a huge problem for us we're super racist i mean i'm caricaturing what they say a little bit but they there's really this norm that you you can't deny the allegations even if they don't have much um evidence behind them
2: this is this is what's so bizarre to me. It's this Kafka trap of you, you actually can't just say, no, fuck off. Like We don't have white supremacy here. The, the guy at base camp tried to do that. They roasted him alive. So I, I hope the Overton window shifts such that in situations where this stuff genuinely is not a thing. I'm not talking about actual racism.
0: People are comfortable saying that. I ended up in February of 2020. I left uh, – actually, February of 2021. I left a listserv I'd been on in some form or another for 15 years in part because – they were having a meltdown over race, mostly driven by white people on the list. It was, it was determined over almost overnight that the listserv had a major problem with racism and that people of color didn't feel welcome. And it was sort of the same thing where it's like, some people were just like, yes, we need to work through this. We need to talk about it. But a lot of us were just like, I, I don't see it because it it had been a list with so much disagreement and so many different factions over the years, and um hundreds of people in total and and it seemed like at different point different factions had their own complaints, like the leftists the Bernie leftists didn't feel listened to sometimes women felt talked over there were all these complaints, but then it just it 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 was this very weird thing where you if you disagreed with the idea that this was a racist list, you were racist, and like you're saying, it's a kafka trap that um you know. There are definitely organizations that are racist, but, but this idea that you have to accept any claim made along those lines, I think is pretty toxic. So, um, anyway, that's a good question and a good example of why I should never run a major organization. I would screw it up somehow. (laughs) Thanks, man. I'll get out of the way. Have a good one. Appreciate it. Patrick, what's up? So Elon
2: Musk is declaring himself Republican now.
0: (laughs) I saw that. I, uh, uh, I'm now upstairs for my computer, but he basically said that Democrats used to be the party of kindness. Now that they're no longer the party of kindness, uh, he's going to become a Republican, which is funny for a couple of reasons. One of which is, party, um, which one is nicer? I don't know how you quantify that. But also the idea that the present incarnation of the Republican Party is... Um, you know they're really known for their kindness and civility, so I can see why he's doing that. It makes a lot of sense, is what I'm saying. Yeah. He's clearly an informed guy.
2: It's it's very weird. So I don't know what to kind of make of it, and I don't know if you do either. But I think there are people who are doing like 5D chess analysis, where this is all some kind of large con to get out of the Twitter deal, which I don't know how declaring himself a Republican, I guess, does that. But then there are also people who are saying, like, well, this is all just a big he's trolling everyone, which, again, I don't really know who the troll is for or kind of what the purpose is. And it's always impolite to speculate about other people's mental health, but he has certain Britney level postings uh, (laughs) that are kind of weird right now where I just can't make heads or tails of it.
0: Yeah, I, um, I I think on Twitter he's pretty Trumpy. I don't think he really has Trump's personality. I don't think he's as like fundamentally broken and bad a person as Trump. He's clearly smart in his ways, clearly a wildly successful businessman. But um, it reminds me a lot of Trump. I'm just like, why would you be tweeting this? Why do you think this is going to help? Is this the sort of thing that you should litigate over Twitter? And to him, the answer is to always tweet more and to treat, tweet tweet in an accusatory specific way that i just it it just comes across as shockingly unprofessional for someone supposedly involved in like a pretty high stakes uh eight figure business deal or nine figure business deal so i just i don't understand it at all but um it does remind me a little bit of trump on twitter
2: so with the trump thing like he used that to position himself to become president which it won't work for elon musk because he's not a natural born citizen so we don't I'm running for president, thank God. Uh, But I guess my concern would be if he does do this kind of thing. It's very weird to have like a kind of public enemy billionaire, especially when a lot of current democratic goals seem to be heading towards green energy. And he is basically one of the kingmakers in that field. Seems weird to kind of create a potential enemy who's in control of the field.
0: It, the whole thing is just incredibly weird, and it's just <laughs> unexpected new subplot of online. Uh, well, I was going to say awfulness, but I also can't really look away from it, so uh, it's bizarre. I don't, I don't see how he could actually take over Twitter. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I have no predictions. here. I don't know enough about how, like the actual business side of it, but it's definitely. A, it's been a crazy ride for sure.
2: Yeah, no, it's 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 very weird. I, I do. if it turns out he's just doing a big troll for a billion for a billion dollars i think he will go down in like 4chan reddit history as the greatest troll of all time which seems like a waste of a billion dollars to me but go for it but uh, i guess we just have to keep watching to see where it
0: develops i couldn't believe he tagged in the sec you know when he's talking about how twitter has a lot of bots like a, just like, yes, that's how you, you get a SEC investigation going is you, you tag them on Twitter. It's like a, a those cranky people like tagging in the FBI to try to get someone in trouble. But B, I just, I, do you, do you want the SEC's attention? Will that be beneficial to you, Elon Musk? It was, that was a bizarre moment. The poop emoji was also a bizarre moment. I couldn't really believe that happened. I keep seeing screenshots of Elon Musk tweets where I'm like, someone fabricated that because there's no way the real Elon Musk tweeted that. But, uh, I'm betting a 1,000 in that they're they, were, they were always actual real tweets, which is mind-blowing.
2: Well, the only good thing about this whole situation so far uh, is the fact that Azealia Banks seems to be back on Twitter, and she's using her Thank time God. tweeting responsibly to fat-shame Nicki Minaj and to call her children ugly.
0: That was the, the other amazing thing. That reminded me of the Jordan Peterson plus-size model thing, which was also just, like, pure, unadulterated Twitter at its worst best. So... um, 've been we're living in an age of bounty in terms of Twitter content and I'm uh, glad all of you guys can share it with me
2: yeah no amount of authoritarian tolerance is gonna stop us from enjoying Twitter good
0: reference Thank You Patrick thank you Teek, what is up Teek Tacman tick tacman
1: hey Jesse how you doing good how are you doing well. Uh, first off, just want to commiserate on the death of Reply All. I've been a fan of TL back when it was on WMYC, so the whole thing was just, uh, it was hard to take.
0: Really so, sad, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, but I wanted to talk to you quickly about the most recent bar pod. There was a story you guys mentioned um, with the white paper on law enforcement use of ability. Yep. And I kept getting hung up on the disability thing. Is that in my head? I was just picturing cops mowing down people in wheelchairs. <laughs> Is it, it, it was it like mental disability in addition? Is that all clumped together in one umbrella now?
0: Yeah, I I think a lot of it was about like people who might have certain disabilities that make it hard for them to respond to police commands. So that could be both deafness and um certain mental health problems that are considered disabilities. So I think the point of the white paper was just like to try to nudge journalists toward writing about certain police interactions in like a more uh enlightened way. And I you know, I can't endorse I did, frankly didn't read it close enough to like know if I agreed with every point, but it seemed like a pretty standard thing for any advocacy group centered on X to do, to write a paper about how here's the media should cover X. It's just like it's a pretty standard form of advocacy I think overall. Okay. As okay, far as yeah, I know, I there are no police did that, did that mowing down people in wheelchairs, but if there were, uh, you know, I'm a pretty morally brave person. I'd like to think I would come out against that. <sighs>
1: <laughs> wow, look at you. Yeah, I can't – there's not that many deaf people out there having runs with the cops either. I don't – it just seems weird why you wouldn't just say mental disability or mental health and focus on that. It, it, Yeah, I don't know.
0: I think like as we divide people up into thinner and thinner salami slices, there's like more opportunities for ever more fine-grained form of, of advocacy and training and organization. So I think that's maybe a part of what's going on here a little bit. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Let's Jesse. See. Appreciate it. Blin, what or Blin, What is that? Blin? You are going to have up. Oh, there we go.
1: Oh. Hey, sorry about that.
3: Um,
4: so I, I, I was just wondering if you were following um, the this Daniel Bergner article that was posted recently in New York Times Magazine about this movement to basically stop medicating for um, you know psychotic conditions, and uh, you know Freddie Freddie De Boer had an actually really interesting. Um, video reaction to it and uh it sort of speaks to something you something that's in your 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 basket case a lot that that's just you know this normalization of ostensibly pathological pathological conditions and uh whether you see uh, you know some some um some change on the horizon there
0: it's on my kindle i haven't read it yet i know freddie was like was not happy about it um I know another guy who's had really serious mental health problems who's working on what I think is going to be a very interesting memoir, and he is, like, really opposed to these sort of aspects of the so-called destigmatization movement. And these guys' arguments, which I find compelling, is like, no, having severe mental illness is actually a horrible thing, and and the only way to live a decent life is to keep it under control and to treat it with medication. And I think they – they, like you're saying, they find it very irresponsible, this idea that, like, no, you're just supposed to, uh, you know, the voices in your head are just who, part of who you are and, and who are we to say you should suppress them. So I'm looking forward to reading the article. I, I, I myself am very, like, skeptical of a lot of this sort of destigmatization stuff. I mean, no one's really opposed to destigmatization. No one's saying, like, we should cast out people with schizophrenia or, like, lock them up without due process. It's more of a question of are you being a good ally by telling someone, no, you don't need medicine. These are just societal constructs telling you you're supposed to not hear voices. And the psychiatric establishment does have guardrails in place or or in theory uh, where if someone hears voices but it doesn't cause them anguish or hardship – Go ahead, hear voices. Like you shouldn't you don't need to be treated for everything. But it seems like these radical destigmatization arguments go much further than that. And I and I have to say that, like, in New York there's been a pretty noticeable uptick of aggressively troubled people on the street who you sort of have to steer clear from. Not just someone like quietly muttering to themselves, but people who like badly need help and are going to hurt themselves or someone else uh, soon enough if they don't get help. So New York to me is starting to edge a little bit closer to San Francisco, which to me is always the city where you see the most of that. Unfortunately, and I, I think it's a particularly bad time to try to, or you know, you can make any argument you want anytime you want. I don't want to pull the during during Pride Month thing, but like I, I think people see what happens when people uh, individuals don't get access to the mental health care they need, and it's it's not really an answer to be like, no, it's just societal norms they're flouting. It's fine. Okay, thank you. Yep, thanks, Ben. And I I should read that article because I'm sure I'll have some more fleshed out thoughts on it. Joe B., what is up?
3: Hey, Jesse. uh, My question is about the disinformation board. Uh, So the government's just announced that they're shutting it down. I wanted to know, did you think there was ever a good reason for it to exist? And do you think any of the the fear around it was overblown?
0: I think some of the fear was like slightly overblown. So – The second that was announced, it was obviously going to cause a conservative shitstorm, and some of the conservative shitstorm was going to be overblown, like saying, you know, this is just like 1984 or whatever. I think it was a terrible idea because I think the idea of like a government body that determines itself to be the arbiter of truth is not a good look. And there's all sorts of ways that could be abused, and I think that's pretty different from – a more focused thing. Like, like I do think one of the roles of the CDC is to publish good information and debunk bad information about say vaccines or about some new disease on the horizon. I think that's perfectly fine. I'm not always opposed to any government anti disinformation efforts, but I think to have like concentrated power in one body, that's like the group. Um, it's also plainly true that uh, Nina, what's her name, who was the pros- proposed head of it, had a history of posting, like, you know, at least borderline misinformation stuff herself. So I, I just think it was a terribly ill conceived effort. I would highly recommend people read Joe Bernstein's Harper's piece on this whole sort of anti misinformation scene. It's becoming a little bit of a racket. It's like a big industry, um, almost in the same way that the the industry of, like, anti-racist interventions is is a racket and doesn't have much evidence behind it. So I think this was just sort of, um, like, an extension of that or, or a pretty bad example of that.
3: Yeah, cool. Thanks. Nice
0: hey, what is up? Hey! Hey,
3: Jesse. Good, how, how you? are you? Not too bad, not too bad. I'm just wondering... Uh, were you following at all any of the recent developments in the Alison Bailey Tribunal in the UK? And did you hear about that uh, last week, the, um, the testimony yeah, of the Stonewall executive?
0: I was following it a little bit. I saw today that um, so Alison Bailey is an attorney, or a, I guess a barrister, as you call it over there. Um, this has to do with it's basically whether she was libeled. Do I have that right?
3: No, it, well, I think she has taken out a, a case against her former employer and against Stonewall for unfair dismissal because uh, Stonewall, uh, on the grounds of discrimination, I believe, against her beliefs because yeah. Stonewall pressured her employer. Yes,
0: they pressured behind the scenes to to fire her, right?
3: Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, they, they pressured her behind the scenes because um, they highlighted a series of her tweets and sent it to her employer in an email and said that she was transphobic and they had a couple of employees on site working there in her employers because they were kind of a diversity champion the employer were and they said that they, these employees wouldn't be safe in her presence oh
0: I'm d- okay I'm sorry this is coming back to me now yeah so I haven't I I thought when it the it first broke I looked into it I haven't been following it as, as closely I did see that like one of the examples of a transphobic thing she said was she highlighted that a a trans activist who she described as a male person had put on a workshop about the um, the so-called cotton ceiling. The cotton ceiling is the idea that uh, trans women um, face oppression because cisgender lesbians won't sleep with them. And to me, that's an example of like, it might not be polite to call that person male if they don't identify otherwise, but like, it's true. And it is true that you have male people saying that, you know, lesbians are doing something wrong if they refuse to see them as dating partners. So to me, I, I really have a lot of trouble with the idea that that's like transphobic. I, I think some of this, in some of these instances, we just sort of need these language to describe reality and to describe certain trade-offs. And I think there's a pretty big difference between like intentionally misgendering someone or be like, no, you're a man, you're a man, you're a man versus saying like, look, there are some trade-offs to the idea that gender identity should trump everything else about biology and sex. And, uh, I think it's what's useful about this case is like you you really see the lengths an organization like Stonewall will go to behind the scenes to hurt people to try to harm people who express dissent. And there was a great uh, BBC series by what's his name Nolan Stephen Nolan. Uh, I'm like, do you know who I'm talking about?
3: Yeah, I know uh, Nolan investigates. I, I think his first name is Stephen. All right, he's a guy from the Northern Ireland on the BBC up there. Yeah. <laughs> Art Investigation series. It's a podcast. About yeah, he Stonewall. did a series
0: on Stonewall and basically their influence in the government and in organizations like BBC. And His point was like, a lot of this is unsettled. Like A lot of this, the law is evolving, norms are evolving, and you have this organization exerting a huge amount of power behind the scenes on groups like the BBC and, and exerting power in the sense of um, forcing everyone to go along with one particular very narrow opinion on this stuff when there's a huge amount of public debate. So um, again, I don't. I'm not fully up on the case, but but I mean, do you think I'm right that this the case sort of nicely encapsulates some of the suppression of dissent going on? What's your view on it?
3: To be honest, I haven't followed this case at all up until it came across my radar about a week yep. ago, and that was what I was going to say to you. Is uh like this was um all over the tabloids in the UK about a week ago, um, because um the head of diversity and inclusion at Stonewall. They're an executive there. They were giving evidence uh, in the tribunal that day, and uh, they were the person that sent the email to her employer, um, kind of pressuring them with uh, a pretty much out-and-out threat at the end that if you do not review your association with this person, we will have no choice but to, you know, uh, reconsider whether we can continue to host events with you and we can continue to be, you know, a, you know, a partner with you.
0: Yeah, um, that shit is so creepy and coercive, just the, the attempts to get people in trouble behind the scenes. Um, yeah, oh, I... Really I is.
3: But the amazing thing about this was that the person, uh, it was done over Zoom, the tribunal, and at the last minute, just before they were supposed to give their evidence, they announced that they need, needed special... Provisions which weren't agreed beforehand, and the provisions were, they needed their elderly mother and um, a support dog with them while they gave their evidence. So, like the, that was all over the British media. They oh kind of had God. a field day with it. What a um, circus! But, yeah, but they were kind of, you know, if you, if you read the the the, um, the transcript, they were well able to give an account of themselves. Like, you know, they didn't seem like someone who required a huge amount of, uh, like, they, they were fairly forceful. Like, and. Um, they, they uh, discussed a couple of things, like their, their views on um, sex and gender, and like they explained it, and that also uh, really kind of caused a bit of um, uh, a storm in the British media, because they were presenting them as extremely centrist views. They said Stonewall is a very centrist organization, we don't have any radical views, but what they were saying was quite a shock, I think. to
0: I saw some of the quotes on Twitter, it was really out there stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah, which was I think just made, made a shock to a lot of people that the, the power that these organizations have, and like the, the the actual you know nature of their views, which are I think a lot more extreme than people than people read are a lot more you know uh, um, yeah extreme and uh, on the far far you know reams or reaches of the of the left as opposed to a centrist view like
0: yeah um, I should I should look more into that trial thank, uh that's a good idea thank you I cool. appreciate. Cheers. It. Thanks. Cheers. Joshua is going to be the last call. Joshua of the uh, blueberry blueberry crumble, if memory serves.
4: Is this Jesse the public face of the secret shadow council controlling the propaganda wing of the U.S. government?
0: Yep, that's me. I mean, no, no, sorry, I should have said no. Oh, okay, I meant, okay, no. Good.
4: just check, just checking. Thank you. Um, I have a I have a question that kind of comes, I guess, from a weird story first, but um, I think it was in the. 1980s early 1990s Batman Returns came out on film uh maybe if I remember, love that I like love that Danny movie DeVito.
0: Danny DeVito as a penguin
4: yeah and he's ridiculous and we look back and it's comical but apparently at the time a lot of the audience was freaked out at it and the whole black drool or blood that was coming out of Danny DeVito's face was scary and in fact there was a uh, teen, I think it was like a Teen Vogue, Teen Kids Magazine film critic who didn't like it because it was too damn scary. Um, And Parents Council Board at the time condemned it, and a lot of politicians condemned the film for not being kid-friendly. Nowadays, we look back and we laugh, and we also see that politicians are not concerned about that kind of level of violence in their films. At this time, but back then it was a uh, public scare and we've had many of those, you know, there used to be a lot of talk, you know, growing up about video games, um, you know, causing mass shootings and causing our children to be more violent. And I guess I'm wondering as we look back and we've had a lot of kind of mass panics um, that we and a lot of public opinions that we now look back at and laugh and even progressive items like for example, gay marriage, we had Obama and other politicians initially against it. How do you yourself? And I guess my question now is how do you yourself have a barometer for knowing what is something that may be a moral panic that, you know, uh, some of us liberals might be worried about uh, and in the future you know, we'll find it not to be a problem versus, like, how do you check yourself and know that, oh, this is actually a legitimate problem?
0: Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think it's so I, to be any claim that, like, some piece of media or some idea is going to cause tremendous harm to young people or, like, even measurable harm, I'm skeptical of just because, like, that isn't really usually how anything works. Um, the video game evidence we have suggests that. It's very hard to argue video games made people v- more violent because there was this absolute, like, exponential explosion in people playing truly violent, like, um, you know, really good graphics and stuff video games, while violent crime really plummeted. So it's just hard to make that argument. Uh, I try to steer clear of like being hysterical about be- kids. Like, we should be able to debate kids being taught X or Y or Z, but. Uh, most stuff just like goes over kids' heads or or just goes through them. I don't think I, I think there's so many other factors that determine whether kids succeed or fail. That it's very rare that a, that a movie or an idea or a book or a video game will cause much effect whatsoever. That's my that's sort of my default stance. And,
4: and I guess in a bigger sense, what I'm also asking is, how do we know that the that the issues of our time where we're you know potentially pearl-clutching, you know, we've brought up issues about, um, tra- you know, trans rights or um, or a- a- other, you know, divisive issues where, you know, again, as liberals, I'd say we're very supportive, but there's some things that we've pushed against. Um, how, how do you look, do you have an internal barometer for those to measure whether World, we are pearl clutching, or whether this is legitimate.
0: I mean, like, I I, mean, I'm, I'm, I'm... concerned. Hey, can you mute yourself? Yeah. Start getting me. echo. Um, I think some kids are being rushed onto physical uh, interventions for gender dysphoria. I think the diagnostic processes suck. I don't, I want kids to get good assessments. I don't think it's like a huge catastrophe. I don't think it's going to kill or injure millions of people but you know it's an issue i'm interested in but i just try to always put it in perspective and to say that we lack data we don't know what's going on within clinics we should we should just demand better higher quality health care and i think there's a lot of sort of outrage entrepreneurs who treat everything that happens as the um you know the biggest thing ever and, and and stoke fears and try to make i mean i won't even say that we know for sure there's a huge increase in detransitioners i think i think there is and but we don't know, and so I—I I don't know. To me, you just have to be honest about what what we know and we don't know. And if you ever find yourself sounding like you know Tipper Gore in the nineties or whatever, that's a bad sign. It's a bad place to be.
4: Okay, thank you. Appreciate
0: it, Jesse. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, these were very good calls, and I really appreciate them. And thank you guys for tuning in. I need to be better about giving more notice before I do these. I think I just gave like two or three hours notice, but uh, yeah, I'll be back um, tomorrow's Thursday. Tomorrow or Friday, not sure yet. And we'll talk a little bit more, and I'll maybe prepare a little bit more of a spiel up top. But uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, I would ask if you like the show, if you like what I'm doing here, please spread the word about it. I get more people into these rooms. But uh, thank you so much, and I hope you have a good rest of your Wednesday. Farewell.